Welcome to What's the Word Downtown, a weekly podcast dedicated to mining the depths of the word, a word that's sharp and active in downtown Tyler, Texas. Join Eric, Matt, and Mike as we get the word out at Bethel. Hey, welcome to What's the Word Downtown. I'm Matt. This is Pastor Eric Barton, Bethel Bible Church Downtown, and we are still in the book of Genesis discussing some of the salient points, major themes, uh, the reality that God is faithful that's been covering this entire walk through Genesis. And we find ourselves in the last couple of weeks in 25, 26, 27, right. uh, having died, Abraham and Sarah leave Isaac uh, and then Ishmael, but also Isaac and Rebecca now married. And they're going to they're gonna continue to um, see that while uh, God is still on the move, they are being returned to some of the same spaces right. that their father was yeah Abraham's life becomes if they will listen to it uh, uh, an instrument of education to Isaac absolutely but he doesn't always listen no he doesn't <laughs> and the Israelites don't and we don't and so these stories are so much more than stories with a moral I think oftentimes we in Western civilization have a tendency to read a story and okay so what's the moral no it's way deeper way broader way higher than that. Way back in chapter 12, God tells Abram, I'm going to do a thing. You are going to have and joy and experience land, offspring, and blessing. I'm going to do this. Now, that has immense implications. With zero, with zero sense of condition. Zero. Like, he doesn't say, I'm going to do this if no. you fill in the blank. Right. So you're saying major implications. Major implications for the 21st century and for the end of history. God cannot but make good on that promise or he ceases being God. That's the one thing he cannot do. Mm-hmm. He cannot un-God mm-hmm. God. And so he promises land and seed and blessing. We see all these taking a lap in the wilderness that Abraham does, which is going to be a foreshadowing for how the Israelites take a lap in the wilderness because they don't trust God, which becomes a foreshadowing for us that we don't trust God. And so we manipulate, we maneuver. Situated as we are in the already but not yet. Correct. Correct. And so this refrain that we've been saying that God is faithful, it can start to sound like churchianity mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of the theological term is yada yada. Mm-hmm. But it's the most profound thing that we as Christians can understand that God is faithful. And as we learn increasingly to live like we're loved, that's what you see is Abram fails to do cyclically mm-hmm. and therefore Isaac fails to live like he's loved cyclically. And yet you see flickers of it because he gets married at the age of 40 to this drop-dead gorgeous woman, Rebecca, and for 20 years, they're childless. Mm-hmm. So 20 years, we think, ah, but that's a biblical timeline. Well, that's a very long time in that day and age to not have children. It seems like you're under a curse. For 20 years to be childless, just like Abram and Sarai were childless, that was because the mark the pro- of shame. the progression of God's normal activity of movement seems to not be occurring. Correct. Which looks like the, you know, it looks like a curse. I was thinking of the idea of like, we are moving forward as we walk through Genesis and and Moses tells those Israelites 430 years later about the, about the previous, what, 1820 years Mm -hmm. or whatever. So the idea being that uh, we are moving forward, think of like a wheel we are moving forward, but it's the same will. In other words, as the will moves forward, and God's and God draws the people in His into His acknowledgement of His faithfulness, we see some of the same patterns. 
oh, happening sure. again and again. Even as the wheel moves forward, we return again and again to this sense of, uh, you know, why do I call my wife my sister? <laughs> why do I uh, get in? Why do I try to scheme when I know of God's faithfulness? Why don't I? Why don't I directly confront my husband, Rebecca? Why? Why do we go and triangulate the children into our drama, right? <laughs> and scheme when God is clearly present and faithful? Why does it happen again and again? And what's crazy and tragic mm-hmm. is we see it happen in these Old Testament saints. But there's almost a sense in which it has to. It has to happen to them because these are people who don't have the completion of the canon of Scripture. The Messianic community or the covenant people of God is a very small group indeed. It's a household. And there's not the presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling these people. So they are left without an enormous amount of resources that we actually have and don't really leverage, don't take advantage of. We have the completed canon of Scripture. We have the Messianic community in the local church and in the church universal we have the eternal, permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and yet we still get in the hamster wheel. Well, the I, same way. I was thinking about you know a lot of our we have a lot of doctors here at, at Bethel. When I talk to the doctors, they talk about med school, and they say for the first two years you learn how the body works, mm. and the second two years you learn how the body goes wrong. Right. And what we get in reverse, it seems, since chapter three of Genesis, right. is we get how things go wrong first. That's good. While God's on the move to make it right. Yeah. So one of the things that we see again and again is we have Cain and Abel. We have Abel whose offering is accepted by the Lord. Uh, and we have Cain who um, feels the real and palpable sting of not having his offering accepted, right? Which right. creates dissension. It creates the assumption of the power differential, and he right. cannot he cannot allow Cain to live. Able to live. Right? Able to live. Excuse me. So when we see this recurring again with Isaac's children, yeah, we see an offering that is accepted in this sort of preferential favoritism that Jacob shows to Esau, mm-hmm. right? That Isaac shows to Esau. Oh. All these names. Isaac. Yeah. That Isaac shows to Esau. Right. And the mother can't. Mother doesn't want that. She wants God's blessing. But she wants to use, and this is what it turns out, she uses worldly means to achieve godly ends. Correct. And therefore, and that is why we, well, I almost said something political <laughs> about evangelicalism. The yeah. idea that worldly means justify godly ends, and they do not, will not, cannot, do not, because, it, because that's not who God is. That's not, what, that's not what he wants. He's not asking us to devise our best schemes to bring his plan into action. Correct. He does not need our help. That's and that's that's sort of the byline. That's the subcaption, mm-hmm. right? Is no, the ends do not justify the means. We try to rationalize, we try to justify, mm-hmm. which means we try to declare our actions righteous because of what's end up going to happen. No, we don't get to do that. We are not in the place of God. There's this wonderful, wonderful meta-narrative, this overarching theme that weaves through scripture, the Germans called Heilgeschichte. Heilgeschichte. It's salvation history. Ah. The the history of redemption, where a holy God works in and through a fallen people Mm -hmm. to effect redemption, and how that has rolled forward through history. And what's amazing, because I I wouldn't do it this way if I was God, which is one of the reasons, many reasons, I'm not God. Praise God, Eric is not God. So very true. Just like to say that. End of the Old Testament, you've got the book of Malachi where we're about to have the final word 
of the Old Testament is destruction mm -hmm. before we have 400 years of silence where God just does not speak. One of the things we hear in Malachi is that sort of the culmination of Old Testament Heilgeschichte, salvation history, is that he's very clear. And this is not a political thing. This is not even an evangelical thing. This is a biblical thing of salvation history is that God's purpose is that people procreate, that people co-create little redeemers. God's purpose is that people come together in union, they make children that are godly offspring, and that's how he chooses to populate the planet is by these little redemption pockets that continue to go forth. That's not saying a 1980s George W. Bush or George H.W. Bush family values. No, it's just that God wants to work through the household. And so we see that already beginning to splinter and fracture. And that's what Malachi says. On that great and fearful day, I will return the hearts of their fathers to the hearts of their sons that's and right. sons to their fathers. That's so right. he's talking more, he's talking about salvation as an experience of familial, uh, social, uh, it's, a, it's a salvation of one, one individual after another an individual, but he's weaving them all in together in this great tapestry. Absolutely. That is strengthened. Absolutely. And, and it takes fathers and mothers stewarding their child well and stewarding the truth of God well between them. We see this go sideways real quick. Oh, yeah. With, with, uh, with Rebecca, not Rebecca. Yes, Rebecca's scheming. Yep. So let's talk about that for a sec. Well, you get the impression that Isaac and Rebecca are not as a couple, not as husband and wife. You get the sense that they are not depositing with frequency and consistency the stories of the faithfulness of God to their sons. Mm -hmm. Like this unit of four people, they're not, they're not bound together by the reality of the faithfulness of God. Mm -hmm. And now, how could they be? In some ways, they don't have this. They don't have the indwelling spirit. But they know enough. But they know enough. So what they do have an advantage over us is that God Himself directly comes to Rebecca. That doesn't happen to us mm -hmm. most of the time, mm -hmm. or any of the time. Mm -hmm. He comes directly to Isaac, and so they have direct revelation, which would be pre-incarnate Christ mm -hmm. speaking to these people. And so they have those experiences, and they have those those Ebenezer's, those standing stones, that say, "Look what God has done and said here." And it is intended that Abraham and Sarah, later Isaac and Rebekah, make a part of their fabric talking about the faithfulness of God. It apparently had broken down. Now, where we in the 21st century get off track is we hear that and we agree with that and virtually everybody does. And so our response is, well, then we as a society need to legislate it. Mm. Wrong. Mm -hmm. Can't be done. We as a society need to codify it culturally. Wrong. Can't be done. It is the purpose of the local church to say, hey, this is who we are to be as little outposts, to be little embassies of the kingdom, and to equip, to educate our families that they can have conversations of sincerity. Even if it's not theologically perfect, that's okay. God's not after our doctrine being 100% accurate. God's after husbands and wives weeping before their kids talking about their brokenness and how God is faithful in spite of their error. Mm. And kids will catch and sponge that so much more than a Bible story through Ecclesiastes. So are we, this is a question I have, are we superimposing our understanding of marriage upon these Old Testament 
Uh, you know, like I don't really understand what marriage. I, we know that marriage back then. You, you your dad has a, a lot of land. My old man has a lot of land. We get married. We get it all. We put. We you know we're throwing in together, sort of. But there's not this sense of like, um, and I, maybe I get this from these two stories now where. Uh, these men of God who have heard from God, who have heard of God's plan and have learned of his faithfulness, slink back somehow. And when they enter into these other territories, they call their wives something other than a wife. Mm -hmm. They call them a sister, presumably to protect themselves. Uh, you know, because why they, they kill a wife, but they wouldn't kill a sister. They would, they would kill him and take the wife to be their own. Mm -hmm. And so it is a very selfish thing for Abraham and later Isaac to go, hey, look, do this for me. Lie. Someone might take you into their quarters, but I'll at least be safe. You see a complete breakdown of, of what it's supposed to be. So to answer your question, it's a very important question. Are we superimposing? Maybe a little bit, but certainly we shouldn't. Mm -hmm. There is an ancient idea and understanding of marriage, as you said, that is a uniting of people's either clan, tribe, nation, whatever, for the purpose of security, for the purpose by of... By covenant. By covenant, but for the purpose of land, expansion of wealth, security of, stability. of mm -hmm. stability, all those kinds of things. That is one model of marriage. Then we have the modern model of marriage that is principally driven by romance, mm -hmm. that I should get to choose the person that's going to make me happy, mm -hmm. which if you really zoom way out, mm -hmm. what kind of nonsense is that we don't have the real wisdom and capacity at the age of 20 to say, hey, this is the person I'm going to spend the next 60 years with. Mm -hmm. But that's what our model of marriage is in this day and age. The point is both models are wrong. Yeah, but, but what we do see in, in biblical narratives, even 4,000 years old, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, later Jacob and Rachel, that is a biblical model that is to be a union of people that is a turbine engine to generate, to propagate, to demonstrate the faithfulness of God. That's the biblical model. So it's kind of a both and, mm -hmm. but the ancients got it wrong. The moderns get it wrong. Right. The Bible gets it right. Shocker. Yeah, And one of the things that I, that I think about just symbolically is that my, uh, what should I say, proclivity to call something or behold Megan as something other than what God has called her. Yeah. He has called her my wife, but I, I somehow in my sinful heart want a wife on my terms, which is something like calling her a sister or calling her something other than a wife, yeah. calling her something other than a helpmate. And I see it again and again that we, that we get caught up in the modern world too much on romance. Right. This, this should all be love and good feelies, not correction, not chastening. You know, not some of the sort of the, we go through passages, we go through seasons as spouses where nothing but the faithfulness of God will pull us through. That's right. You know, I was talking with someone just this past week and they were angry at the contemporary cultural idea that has emerged where husband and wife refer to one another as partner. Because it sounds very much like a capitulation mm -hmm. to uh, less noble relationships. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so well-meaning, God-loving, church-attending, Bible-reading, Jesus-embracing people react negatively to the term partner. And I got to ask them, are you reacting to the connotation through secular media? Yes. Or are you reacting also perhaps to the notion that you really are partners? Mm -hmm. 
that it's not a pop song relationship. You are partners and being this household that is together, husband and wife, dovetailing in perfectly, that, that you are supposed to be working together in a partnership where there's this synergistic effect of one plus one and the presence of the Holy Spirit equals like 10. Yeah, because, because then you're, you're, you're begatting children who are catching more than you teach, right? More is caught than taught. They're catching a, a marriage in the throes of a redemptive process. That is to right. say, I'm sinning alongside my wife who is sinning, and God is forgiving us both and, and creating within us, vis-a-vis -vis the Holy Spirit, the capacity to forgive one another and love and reconcile again and again and again. And I just wonder if when you begin to call your wife something she's not, if the inevitable trickle-down is the kind of power differential we see in Cain and Abel and that we see in Jacob and Esau. Sure it is. Sure that, it is. That, that the wife called something else by the husband, begins to scheme for what she still believes God's plan is for her life, but she does it apart from her husband. Right. This is a very much a return to the garden here where we're hiding from Adam Adam and Eve are hiding from one another. This What Rebecca does to bring Esau in to do this whole... You and I have talked about this a lot, yeah. and we see it played out for thousands of years in an assumption of scarcity, which happens in a marriage, which happens in siblings, which happens in churches and communities. And Zero sum game. Right. I have to get mine. So the moment I start to think that you, my friend, my brother, or that you, my wife, my partner, might not be pulling the rope in exactly the same level of force that mm -hmm. I am, now resentment, bitterness, mistrust, scheming, manipulation, perversion begin to happen. And so we see that even here. Apparently, Isaac and Rebecca begin to drift. They stop functioning as partners. I'm not putting a modern filter on that. They stop communicating of what God has communicated to them, right. to their kids. Right. Apparently, Esau doesn't know of the oracle that God gives to Rebecca, or at least he doesn't understand it or he doesn't believe it. Now, that's a failure on the part of Rebecca and Isaac. Mm -hmm. Esau should have known and not been so furious and offended and betrayed. Mm -hmm. But then Jacob is a schemer. He manipulates because of his scarcity-based assumption of the world. There's not enough for everyone, so I've got to get mine first. We saw this when COVID happened. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of toilet paper mm -hmm. in the world, but suddenly there wasn't right. because everyone assumes scarcity. That is completely antithetical to our refrain of God is faithful. So Jacob and Esau scheme. What we see then, we move our Jacob schemes against Esau, gets his birthright. We transition to chapter 26. We see Isaac begins to scheme. And amazingly, the surprise of that chapter is that Isaac explodes in prosperity and bounty. And that's his problem. We tend to think that, oh, he went through a time of suffering. Bless his heart. That's not good. No, no, no. It was in those times of prosperity that apparently Isaac forgets of the faithfulness of God, despite the unarguable blessing that God was giving in a very harsh environment. He's digging wells in the desert and finding water every single time. That doesn't happen. And yet that caused him to focus more on his, on his business, we might say, and just assumed that Rebecca and or the boys were being brought up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. In other words, Adam Smith was a terrible pastor. Adam Smith was a terrible father where the assumption of specialization, you handle that, or in the modern day, you drop off your kids here at the church 
we'll introduce them to Jesus, you pick them up when they're 18 right. and they'll be fully baked. Patently false. Doesn't work that way. We see it in Abraham and Sarah. We see it in Isaac and Rebecca. We're gonna see it later with Jacob. It is incumbent on us to see that these stories are about the faithfulness of God and that that familial environment is the core place that that has to be discussed. Now that mm -hmm. immediately makes one wonder, okay, but what about for people who are not in a family? What about single adults? What about students? What about people who are older or divorced or whatever that might be? Excellent question that I just asked myself. That's right. We're still seeing the normative practice and that those individuals or those, those people are still contributors into the clanliness mm -hmm. of, of propagating the faithfulness of God. Mm -hmm. it, it's a biblical idea. It really does take a church to raise a Christian, and it has to have all different sorts of tribal village members, we might say, to contribute to that. Well, and it's such a, it's such a comforting, as much as we miss the mark, it's such a comforting idea that God's ways cannot be thwarted. That's right. Uh, there's, a, there's a space in uh, Atlanta called the Spaghetti Junction. Apparently, it was created by a guy on acid at Georgia Tech. It was how, it was, it's the, inter, the mix master interplay, you know. Okay. But if you're going south, you may go all around, but you'll still you eventually still get, get south. And there's a sense like that God, I mean, because it, it's still going to be uh, through Jacob, right? Right. That even though he's the schemer, it's the sense already, even in these earliest chapters of Genesis, that Moses, what's being revealed to Moses is that God desires to make his sacred presence known right in the middle of the profane. Yes. Right in the middle of our mess and muck and mire. hundred percent. You get the intention or the impression from the text that Esau is actually the more likable guy. He's kind of a, a bit of a Gaston from Beauty and yeah. the Beast. He's the backslapping hunter guy. He's the guy at the brew pub that's going to clink his mug with you. He's a fun guy to be around. He's actually a, a decent guy. And he's not too caught up on things like birthright. He's, he's not. not too worried about the future. He's not. Which kind of is a likable trait. It is. Right? He's more present because he's not focused working hard and scheming to get to some future place. And yet the dark side of that is he has no long-range plan, no long-range vision. There's no... There's no constitution of wisdom there. It's like early Three Little Pigs vibe. A little bit, yeah. yeah he's and not so, ready. Yeah. And so Jacob is way the opposite extreme. He's way too much. Yeah. And so you get this horrible, horrible scene that is supposed to be emotionally penetrating to us where both of these boys at 75 years old are going to their father, who's 135, still grasping for some sort of recognition, affirmation, appreciation. Mm -hmm. And you get the idea that Isaac's going, look around, we have... Flocks upon flocks upon flocks. We have grain. We have wine. We have olives. We have about all. What are you worried about? And they're going, but we don't have you. Both of them are scheming to try to get that acceptance, that appreciation, which a family that has the fabric of, we're going to talk about what failures we are miserably, but we have a God of Heilgeschichte. We have a God who is always in the history of redeeming. And for two boys to have heard their mom and dad say, guys, we were tell you about the time that I tried to tell the Philistines that your mom was my sister. Oh yes, dad, you've told us before. Let me tell you again, because I was such a selfish loser and God blessed me anyway. And you see through this continual repetition of how much Isaac loves delicious food. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Which, by the way, I don't, it's not in the Hebrew exactly, but I'm pretty sure that's an early flicker of Mexican food. Oh, is that but right? Mexican food? Yeah, well, Dude, I was in the back row going like this because my <laughs> wife calls me the pleasure baron. And and, and part of the problem with that I, We is, need some t-shirts ordered. <laughs> <laughs> Part of the problem with that is you, sleepless. You can't you can't tell your children about the goodness and faithfulness of God if your mind is on what you're going to eat next and what you're <laughs> going to consume next. Yeah. And there's something about that scarcity riddled reasoning that says there's not enough, so you're constantly looking around for delicious food. Wait, boy, you get me good food? Come here, go get me some food that I can bless you. Right. Because what I'm really interested in is feeding my own gut. Paul says it in Philippians, their destruction is certain, their God is their belly. And I think he has in mind Isaac when he says that. He's driven by his senses, he's driven by his appetites. A guy who lives with the assumption of a scarcity-based world, who cannot have the maturity, the, the growth, the development to willingly enter into delayed gratification, that person is on the wide road to destruction, is another way we might say it. And so again, parents, uncles, aunts, teachers, uh, grandparents, community members, neighbors who can share the faithfulness of God that, hey, sometimes you might want to react to a fleshly impulse, push back, delay that gratification. Mm -hmm. First, consider that God is faithful. Is the, is the pursuit of that pleasure really going to deliver? I can remember as a kid, seven years old, going to the refrigerator, opening up the refrigerator, taking the can of Betty Crocker cream cheese frosting yeah. and having a spoonful. And it was delight and it was yeah. joy. And so I kept going. Yeah. Within about 30 minutes, I was a miserable wretch of a human being. Yeah. It never, ever, ever pays off. It they never said, has. They said to Homer Simpson, you can't eat all the donuts. <laughs> He says that's a problem for future Homer. Exactly so he right. makes a, a ridiculous uh, compartmentalization yeah. uh, that allows him to, to abuse his body now, which will put him on the couch asleep, uh, you know, in 20 minutes when, you know, he needs to be what he needs to right. be for his kids. It's an amazing wheel that we're on. We're in the 21st century, psychotherapeutically, Clinicians and therapists and counselors all know that one of the side effects or one of the byproducts of our culture is that all of us at one degree or another are all ADD. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the watermark of ADD is the inability to accurately consider consequence. That's one of the hallmarks of ADD is your inability to consider consequence and you live in the moment. We even say things in a positive way. Just be present. Live in the moment. Yeah. Yes, but not at the expense of the consequence that you're giving. Mm -hmm. What's amazing about that is we're saying those things with really clear and clever articulation in the 21st century is that 3,000 years ago, Solomon was saying the same thing exactly in the Proverbs. He just says it in Hebraic meter mm -hmm. and verse. Sure. But he's saying the exact thing. The fool fails to consider here. One of my favorite Proverbs is he says, like a hinge creaking on his door is the one who fails to consider his sleeping moments. And there's this very like, as you turn over, yeah. just, I don't care, I'm letting the day go by. I yeah. don't care. It, you're living with the inability to practice delayed gratification and to consider consequence. But those things don't need to be bludgeoned into our young people. Right. They are demonstrated that God is faithful, mm -hmm. and this is where we have failed, and yet he loves us. And you guys know what? You girls know what? 
you're going to fail too. And we're never not going to love you. And we're always going to be for you because this is how our God feels about us. And we want you to see that in us. Now, a household that is normatively constructed on that concrete is what will stand. And God will bless, not materially necessarily, but certainly eternally. And that's but, and, and conversely, uh, if your father is primarily concerned about his gut, one, at least one of your children will be. Of course. And he was. Of course. Wasn't he? Didn't he sell the birthright for the soup? Yeah. Just like his father. I mean, he's of like, course. it's a chip off the old rotten block. That's right. You go, oh, where did Isaac, where did Esau learn that? And then you yeah. see Esau, and you're going to see the wreckage continue on and yeah. on and on through Genesis. It's tragic. The, the, ref, the final refrain from this chapter 27 is they all four of them. There's not a hero in the story. Mm -hmm. There's not a moral. Mm -hmm. The refrain is that God is faithful, but there's no hero. There's no character that we want to resemble. We always talk about these great men of faith. Mm -hmm. No! All of them. Mm -hmm. The point is that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, mm -hmm. and Jacob, despite their being schemers and manipulators. They all scheme. They all try to manipulate. They gain nothing. God's going to do what God's going to do no matter what, but they lose everything. They gain nothing through all that effort. Had they just trusted and followed, they would have gotten both, but they, they gain nothing. God's still blessed through Jacob, but they lose their whole family. They and never see each other again. And you think about those guys sitting there with Moses as he tells these stories, these guys that were grumbling about the manna. Right, right. Getting an opportunity to behold within themselves Jacob. Of course. And behold within themselves uh, or I should say Esau and Isaac, you know, the, those delicious food lovers. Right. Um, Unless those guys sitting around with Moses are all going, yeah, I sure wish Shlomo was hearing this because that's what he yeah, does. That's what he does. And we do the same thing. I've been I, fine with the manna. That's right. I wish my wife was hearing this because she needs to hear this. Yeah. We're the ones that always need to hear it. Yeah. Of course we are. Well, and to that end, I want to ask one sort of final question. As we walk through this uh, book of Genesis, of course we have the context of what Moses is teaching those Israelites who are suffering in the already but not yet of not being able to cross over yet, just yet, into the land of Canaan. But uh, are we also to look at these stories? Are we supposed to see familial patterns in these stories that exist today? I mean, the devil's not creative. Right. He only, he continues to do the same things over and over. Is this not a story of humanity and the predicament of being born uh, in uh, in sin, and somehow, you know, we can't be we can't be rescued from it. We have to be forgiven through it. Yeah, that's exactly right. God is not a rescuer; He's a forgiver. Yeah. The same siren song of Genesis three that God is holding out on you, that you're missing out somehow, is the same thing we're seeing in all of these stories, all these narratives. The tragedy of these narratives, it is at least in chapter 27 of Genesis, it's a godless chapter. He's never sought. He's never mm -hmm. spoken of unless it's blasphemous, <laughs> yeah. which is a terrible thing. Sure. And yet he's there. He's working in spite of it all. We're, we're intended to read these stories to associate with, okay, how do we as a family, how do I as a leader of my home get this wrong? And then it's supposed to build in us a, a wanting more. Like, so... So what is the what is the answer? What what is the solution? As Heilgeschichte, this redemption history moves forward, what is it pushing to? And we have to look at this, not exclusively, but certainly we have to look at this as it points to Jesus. 
the one who yielded his firstborn right so that we could be firstborns. Oh, I don't have to grasp. I don't have to wonder if he's holding out on me. Look, look at Jesus, what God does Instead in Christ. Instead of grasping, he lets go completely. He lets go completely. Mm-hmm. He's clothed in our sin, like mm-hmm. Jacob was clothed in the goats. Rebecca says, I'll take the curse on me. himself the, the, the Absolutely. delicious food or whatever on the cross. Absolutely. He's, he, is, he denies himself. There's a delayed gratification. There's a consideration of consequence. All these things, we see that God has provided the ultimate seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it's Jesus. And we live in this side of Heilgeschichte as it's still rolling forward, but we see the Omega moment is the Christ event. Yes. And so the end of history has already begun. We live in this reality. And so, my goodness, how much more tragic when we fall prey to a scarcity-based mindset and the inability to consider consequence and to not delay gratification and then to not pour that wisdom into our kids. We have all that we need, Peter says, for life and godliness. And he gives not according to our merit, but it's glorious riches. Absolutely. Okay, well, we're going to keep rolling through this. We'll be at 28 this week. Yes. Can't wait. 10 a.m. Sunny morning. Halloween. Good stuff. Spooky good. You betcha. (laughs) Have a good one. God bless.